thank you today for your amazing salvation, your love, your goodness, and your grace in each of our lives. And so, Father, we pray for those that are walking through a very challenging moment in their life. We think of Robbie and his family at this time. We pray for grace and comfort. Think of Wuji, that you would minister the same in his life and in his family. And Father, we recognize that there is an ebb and flow to all of our lives, and change is inevitable. Things happen. They're beyond our control. So Lord, we look to you to sustain us in those moments, to give us your grace, to give us your enabling strength, Lord. When our world seems like it's falling apart, when things come to us that shatter us, I pray that we will find our hope in you, Father, a hope that gives us the strength to continue in our present, Lord, without allowing despair to overwhelm us. We thank you for that. And now I pray that you'll open our spirit as we hear your word, that these words that you give to us will be living, they will produce faith and hope in you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Rick Mobley tells a story of being in a Sunday school class and the question was asked, you know, how do you handle, or what is, how do you handle times of, discouragement or what are what are verses of scripture that kind of sustain you during those moments of time and young man said well his favorite text during a time of difficulty and discouragement was psalm 23 1 where it says the lord is my shepherd i shall not want middle-aged lady said i love psalm 46 god is my refuge and strength a very present help in trouble another lady said i love the text that jesus said in the world you'll have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And then old Mr. John, who was 80 years old, stood up and said with as much strength as he could muster, and it came to pass. And it's stated 85 times in the Bible, and the class, of course, started giggling a little bit and thought, you know, well, he's, you know why would he say that? You know, it just wasn't, you know, kind of, it's kind of a funny text, right? And then he, when they, everyone stopped snickering, he went on to say, at 30, I lost my job, and with my six children and my wife, I didn't know how I was going to take care of them. At 40, my eldest son was killed overseas in the war, and that experience knocked me down. At 50, my house burnt to the ground, and everything we had was lost. At 60, my wife of 40 years contracted cancer, and it slowly ate away until... At the age of 65, after many nights of praying and crying, she passed away, and I still miss her. The agony I went through in each of these situations was unbelievable, and I wondered, where are you, God? And I don't know if that's ever happened in your life where you've questioned, God, where are you? But he went on to say, but each time I looked in the Bible, I saw one of those 85 verses that said, and it came to pass. And I felt that God was telling me that my pain and my circumstances were also going to pass and that God would get me through it. So when a long time seems like a long time and if you're really going through an agonizing moment, a painful moment, a, you know, the Bible doesn't use this term but many you know, people in the realm of spirituality talk about the dark night of the soul. When you go through those moments of tremendous testings where you cry out and it seems like God is not responding, where it seems God is distant, 
where you feel God isn't hearing your prayer and isn't answering your prayer. We need to remember that the situation that we're in, it too will pass. It's not a forever situation. It can go on for a long time. Sometimes these challenges can go on for years. And we need to understand that. But today, uh, I think what so often happens, and what I'm going to try to help us to see today, is that difficulties often obscure God's promises. Isn't that true? As a matter of fact, we tend to focus on the problem. We tend to focus on the pain rather than focus on what God has to say and on who he really is. And we forget his goodness in these storms called life. As a matter of fact, in this text, I don't know the actual uh, incident in David's life. As a matter of fact, you know, I was, I'm studying the Psalms and the wisdom literature, and it's interesting that a lot of these Psalms don't give us titles because they kind of transcend a particular circumstance in life. It's because, you know, we, don't, we all experience these moments in our lives. And I'm sure David had more than one moment, so we can't go back and say, this is the exact moment in his life. But just think back with me as a young man. He was tending his father's sheep, and Samuel came on the scene, and, and God was calling David to become the king of Israel. What an amazing moment when he bypassed all of his older brothers. His dad hadn't even called him, and Samuel said, do you have another son? Because obviously... These aren't it. And David's dad said, yeah, I do. He's out tending the sheep. They said, go get him. And David bursts on the scene and Samuel anoints him with oil and says, you're gonna be the next king. Can you imagine that moment? What that must have felt like? He was about 17 years old. Wow, I got an amazing future. God is calling me to do this. But how many know there's a jump between the time God you know, begins to prompt in your heart what he wants you to do and the reality of what he's going to get you to do. And there was a huge amount of difficulty between the time David was anointed king and David became king. As a matter of fact, if you study, you'll find out there was about 13 years and most of it was a very unhappy time for David, running away from the jealousy of Saul. You know, lots of problems in his life. There was despair. You know, his family got raided. You know, his village got burnt. I mean, there was all kinds of bizarre things happening. And you, you kind of wonder if this is a mockery, you know, that God had promised this, but it was never going to happen. And then all of that came to an end. And David eventually became king. Just king over, you know, the southern two tribes. But eventually David became king over all Israel, just exactly as God had promised. You know, we would all want to have God give us an amazing word but we don't want to get the journey to actually get to the place where that word becomes reality because there's a lot of challenges that come in between what God promises and what God brings about in our lives. You know, the wisdom literature of the Bible and other writings, they're, they're, not, they're called non-canonical, which just means that they're not Bible writings, but there's a lot of ancient writings by other writers and authors. They're called wisdom literature, uh, you know, People call it the Apocrypha. Anybody ever heard of this stuff? Yeah, it's kind of in the Catholic Bible in the Old Testament. There's still some interesting things in there that are actually worthwhile reading. I'm not saying that they're God's word, but you can learn from them. Anyways, I'm bringing all that up because I'm going to appeal to one of those texts of, of, of the Apocrypha. And don't stone me for doing it. I, you know, It's just like quoting from another book, that's all, and I get it. Okay, but let me just share this. 
that Gerhard von Rad in his book, Wisdom in Israel, says this about the issue of suffering. And I'm, I've been actually reading this stuff and thinking about it. You know, uh, he says, but also in the case of sufferings which are not caused by any recognizable sin. And some of you have been with me for a long time. You know, I preached through Job for two years and basically pointed out that, you know, there's this concept, and we all have it. It's kind of intrinsic within our lives that if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to experience the wrong result. Isn't that true? It's kind of cause and effect, and we've all had those experiences where we've made bad decisions and we've suffered the consequences. But there are moments in our lives as Christians that we've done the right thing and we've still suffered and we kind of had question mark. Why did God let this kind of thing happen in my life? I was just doing everything right and my world came undone. And that certainly happened for Job. I mean, God himself said that Job was a man without blame. He was a blameless person. This is not other people talking about Job. This is God's verdict on his life. Pretty heavy verdict. How many be pretty impressive God said, your life is blameless? You'd have to be pretty happy with that statement. And yet, God allowed these tremendous tribulations and testings and trials to come in Job's life. I mean, losing, you know, all of his wealth. You know, he lost 10 children. How many know that'd be very painful? And then himself losing his health and struggling and, you know, and really upset. Like, and, and when he was praying, it seemed like God wasn't answering. Kind of the very same context that we find here in Psalm 13. Anyways, Gerhard goes on to say, which affects men for no comprehensive reason. A very solemn explanation presented itself to man's search for knowledge. In other words, have you ever asked the question, why? Why is this happening to me? I don't get it. You know, what am I supposed to learn from this experience? Gerhard goes on to say, in such sufferings, God is secretly, but in the end, clearly pursuing the task of training he says, man, but people. He, God, is, God is using these moments in our life to train us. But we don't see that. All we see is the pain, the sorrow, the suffering, the difficulty, the testing. Abraham was tested, right? God said, I want you to take your only son up on the mountain. Wow, was that a test or was that not a test? I think that was an amazing test. It was a test of Abraham's loyalty to God, his willingness to obey God to do a very difficult thing. And then we keep reading here. It says, since they, the wisdom teachers themselves, were concerned with the training of men and thought so highly of its usefulness, it is understandable that the idea of divine training or correction through, uh, through suffering was particularly cultivated by them. And so they would argue from texts like this in Proverbs. And we've all read this verse. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because why? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and as a father, the son he delights in. And so what we need to understand is that these moments that come into our lives, there's a purpose for them, and there's a reason, and actually it's an indication that you and I are children of God. And the fact that if we never are disciplined, we'd have to begin to question, if God really loves me, why isn't he addressing things in my life? Why isn't he shaping character in my life? You know, so this is actually a moment of celebration. So if some of you are going through things and going, I just don't get what's going on. I'm, I'm trying to serve God to the best of my ability, but there's these trials and temptations and difficulties coming my way. What's going on here? You know, you should be rejoicing. God is actually allowing some things to happen to actually forge and develop character in your life. 
As a matter of fact, in another text in Proverbs 17, in verse 3, it says, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Isn't that interesting? It's God that actually gives the exam. He's the examiner. He's, he's actually causing the test. And how many here really enjoy taking tests? You know, most of us go, I'd rather not do that. You know, I just took an exam here uh, two Fridays ago, three hours, yay. You know, I'm in my 60s still taking exams at school. You know, wow, isn't that exciting? I'm a slow learner. <laughs> but I want you to know there's another, this is interesting. This is in one of those apocryphal books. And uh, in Sarah 4, 11, they're kind of written like Proverbs too. It says, Wisdom teaches her children and gives help to those who seek her. For at first she will walk with them on torturous paths. She will bring fear and dread upon them and will torment them by her discipline until she trusts them. And then she will test them with her ordinances. How many get the idea that, you know, there's a personification happening, kind of a metaphor of wisdom? And if you study Proverbs, wisdom is described as a woman, lady wisdom. There's lady wisdom and lady folly. That's in the book of Proverbs. But here in Sarah, what he's saying is that wisdom is actually, one of the lessons is it actually creates this test. It makes things hard. And it's trying to see if it can actually trust you. And then it says this. And then she comes straight back to them again and gladden them and will re reveal her secrets to them. In other words, if you really want to be a wise person, you have to go through hard things and gain experience. And how many know in our culture that is so beyond what we're about? I mean, we're all about youth, innovation, novelty, and trend. How many of that's true? That's what we celebrate. And yet, think about this. Some of you that are a little bit older, some of the things that you've learned, you can read things in a book till you're blue in the face, but then you walk through the experience of life and you go through a hard time and you come out on the other end and you are shaped differently. You have a different way of looking at life. You have now matured through that experience. You have walked with God. You have trusted God and you have learned something profound. And here's what I'm going to say to you. One of the things you end up learning, sometimes in the most deep, dark times in your life, is simply this. While you thought God was a million miles away, God was ever near to you. And even though you prayed and he did not seem to answer you, he was there watching, hovering, guiding, directing. And at the end of the trial, you came away knowing God's presence was there the whole time. And that you have a deeper confidence in God than ever before. And so that the next challenge that comes, you now have the experience of knowing God's still here. Isn't that powerful? Now, when you're starting out, you don't know these things. You have to experience it. So, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I, I want to have, have wisdom. You know, I'm actually going to write on this stuff because, and I was reading this guy, Gerhard von Rodden. He, he basically brings out this idea that, that, you know, you and I can live an entire lifetime and not learn all the lessons. How many say that's true? And that we actually have to learn from other people. And so the wisdom teachers were actually saying, you and I have to learn from the generations of people who've had many experiences through life. And so we look at that and we glean from their wisdom so we don't have to do the same stupid things that some of them did. 
Now, how many here would like to learn from other people's mistakes and not make them all yourself? Anybody in that category? Yeah. And so that's why we look at wisdom literature, so we can possibly do the right thing and not experience all the pitfalls, right? And go through all the mistakes and suffer all the consequences. That's the value of it. Okay. Listen, once the test is ultimately done, Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10. I didn't post this one, but you can look it up later. It says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while. You know, I was you know, working on this, and afterwards I, I got done, and I shut everything down and printed my sermon, and I oh, that verse popped in my head. After you have suffered a little while. You know, how little is that while, Lord? You know, because I've had some experiences that have lasted longer than a day or two. And they've gone into a week or two. And some have gone into a month or two. And I've had some that have gone into a year or two. And I've had some that have continued on. After you have suffered a little while, it says, he himself will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Wow. God's developing us. So, you know, we have to understand how he goes about doing that. But now, as we look at our text today, David is struggling in a moment of great adversity. And I believe that some of you are here today, and you're going through a time of great agony. You're going through a time of great testing. You're struggling. You know, Pastor Darren shared last week about anxiety, how to overcome it. I was going to pick up on that. I'm going to keep going. I mean, how do you deal with, you know, these these challenging moments, these moments where we're questioning, where we're wondering, God, are you even in the situation? Because I feel abandoned. I feel like, you know, you've checked out. I feel like I'm praying, but no one's listening. I feel like you're just ignoring me. I feel like you've put me on the shelf and forgotten me. Anybody relate to that? Anybody can relate to what I'm talking about? Listen to David's prayer. It's so powerful. And there's really three movements you know, because I hear, here you're going to hear the struggle where God seems silent and distant. Anybody walk through this time? I've been through these moments, so I know what I'm talking about. This isn't just theory, guys. This will happen. This happens in your life as you're walking with God. You'll have these challenging moments. And so let's take a look. The first thing we notice in this psalm is this cry of desolation. Look at the first two verses here. He says, my, how long, O oh Lord? Anybody ever ask the question, how long is this going to keep happening? You know, is this ever going to come to an end? Anybody ever raise that as a question in your life? You go, when will this end? How long? I've asked that question. How long? And then I felt like, I can't keep doing this, God. Anybody ever say that? And then you finally go, I'm, I'm in, we're into overtime, God. You know, I'm just letting you know, I'm, I'm running out of, you know, energy and all. I, I can't keep doing this. And God goes, you will. You can. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? I feel like, God, you've forgotten. How many have ever felt, God, you forgot my address? God, you don't know my number. I keep ringing, but you're not responding. Anybody relate to this? See, David is telling us this is how he feels. He goes, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? 
Anybody here got tormented in your mind? You just keep replaying things over and over in your mind. Anybody been up at night kind of trying to figure things out, work through the problems, and you just can't come up with the solutions? Anybody relate to what David's talking about? You see, I, I don't know. David and I, we must be the best of friends. I've gone through all of this stuff. How long will you wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Man, if you've ever had a, you know, a downtime in your life, you know, you just, you're suffering, you're sorrowing, you've walked through sorrow. You're just going, you know, God, you've just abandoned me. You've just given up on me. That's what I feel like. How long will my enemy triumph over me? I feel like, you know, I've not done anything wrong, and yet I have all these enemies rising up against me and telling me how bad I am. Anybody relate to that? I've had that experience, even as a minister. You know, some of you go, really, Pastor, you've gone through that? Yes, I have. So this is not, I'm not taking this out of a book, folks. I'm taking this out of life. It's coming from this book because this is an inspired book that explains what life is really like. And so here David's cry of desolation. God, do you really care for me? You know, Job went through this hour. You know, Job got mad at God. I've read this book very carefully, you know. He wanted to put God on trial. He said, this is really unfair. I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and here I am, I'm suffering like crazy in these Rich people who are ungodly are enjoying life, and I'm, I'm, I'm being crucified over here. What's the deal? Life is unfair. Anybody feel that? Life is unfair. You know? I want to talk to God. I, we have a little discussion. I've done everything you've told me, but you're not, you're not producing your end of the bargain, God. So I'm going to put you on trial. That was the whole book of Job, you know? And all of his buddies were saying, Job, listen, God's good, and uh, if you just confess your sins, uh, God will forgive you and everything will get right back to where it was supposed to be. Job goes, I didn't sin. I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. Yeah, wow, what a powerful story, right? Yeah. The Bible describes these times. Listen to what uh, the book of uh, Ephesians says. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. Some say, well, what's the devil doing it? Yeah, but God's letting him do it. God's allowing it. And so there's moments in our life when the enemy of our soul is coming against us and he says, put on the full armor of God. He goes, your struggle's not against flesh and blood. How many know it sure feels like flesh and blood? It's always coming through people. It's coming through their mouths. You know, some of us think it's our spouse, our kids, our boss, our, you know, our employees. You know, we think they're the problems. Let me tell you something. They ain't the problem, folks. It's, flesh, it's not flesh and blood. But we, you know, because it's coming through people, we assume they're our enemy. They're not our enemy. It says not flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, authorities, powers of, dark, of the dark world, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, we may not know this, but I'm gonna tell you today, you have an enemy. If you're a child of the living God, you have an enemy. And he's after your faith, he's out to destroy and shatter your confidence in God. That's what he's out to do. And it says, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that's an interesting expression, you should circle that in your Bible, the day of evil comes. There is an evil hour. There is a time in your life where you feel like all hell breaks loose against you. You can actually say that. What in the world is going on? All hell breaks loose. I mean, and how many have noticed that when the problems come, they don't just come like one after another. It's just like you get 10 of them all at one time. It's overwhelming. Anybody relate to that? You feel like you're drowning. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. And when the evil hour comes, you may be able to stand your ground. How many think it's kind of important, you know, 
You're not being run over. You're standing. You know, you don't feel like anything else is happening, but at least you're standing still. It says, be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firmly then. And then he talks again about putting on the armor of God. In other words, it's all about trusting God in that moment. That's what he's trying to tell us. So, no relief in sight, no change in the situation. We're asking, how long, God, can this continue? Is this going to happen forever? Am I going to go through my entire earthly life with this kind of a difficulty? Is this, am I never going to be delivered from this? You know, the nation of Israel felt like this. They said to the prophet Isaiah, but Zion said, they were complaining to God. They said, God, you've forsaken us. You've forgotten us. And Isaiah comes back, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I'll not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God says, listen, I know, I know your address. I know your phone number. I'm right there with you. I'm just not, I am not living out your agenda. See, what our problem is, we have an agenda. Come on, everyone in this room, we have an agenda. We know what we want. God goes, I have a different agenda. And my agenda is to make you mature, my agenda is to make you like me, to make you godly, to make you a loving, caring, forgiving, you know, compassionate, understanding person like me. Wow. That's a whole new agenda. And God says, I'm going to allow things to come into your life to help you become like me. The goal that God has is that you and I grow up, you and I mature, you and I become like him. You know, I could go on and talk about all kinds of times in the Bible. You mean talk about the disciples, you know. Here they are in the boat doing ministry. They're in the will of God. Jesus is with them. They're following Jesus. He says, get in the boat. He gets in the boat with them. They're out to sea. Jesus is tired. He's sleeping in the boat. What happens? A storm comes up. Now, you've got to understand something. There are men in that boat who have spent their entire life fishing on that lake. This is not a normal storm, folks. Many scholars believe that the storm that came was satanically inspired. It was designed to kill them. They felt they were going to drown. They had never seen a storm like this. It was so bad. They woke Jesus up. They said, don't you care about us? In other words, how can you sleep through this storm? How can you just ignore what's going on in my life? And Jesus gets up and he talks to the storm. He says, knock it off. <laughs> Weather's perfect. And Jesus turns to his disciples and goes, well, I got a question for you guys. Can't you trust me? You see, you and I are in the storm going, where are you, God? Do you care about me? And God is saying, can't you trust me? I'm there. I'm in the boat. I can speak to that storm in a moment's notice. But I'm doing something in your life right now. You need to trust what I'm doing. You know, often we wonder why the necessity of adversity in the Christian life. Well, let me remind you that it's one of God's tools to develop character. Do you know every person that God is going to use in a great way, he first allows them to suffer? We don't want to hear that, Pastor. Sorry. You know, John Maxwell points out, no society has ever developed tough men during times of peace. Adversity is prosperity to those who possess a great attitude. Kites rise against, not with the wind. He said, you know, few people knew Abraham Lincoln until the great weight of the Civil War fell on him. That's why he became a great president. He had to deal with such great problems. Robinson Crusoe was written in prison. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, 
He was writing that book from prison. Sir Walter Raleigh wrote the history of the world during a 13-year imprisonment. Luther translated the Bible while he was confined in the castle at Wartburg. For 10 years, Dante, the author of the Divine Comedy, worked in exile and under the sentence of death. Beethoven wrote his greatest pieces of music while he was almost deaf and became deaf. It's an amazing stuff. Through the pit and the dungeon, Joseph came through the tone, throne. Sorry, Moses tended sheep in the desert before God called him for service. Peter, humbled and broken because he had denied Jesus, you know, was finally, after that experience, heard the call to feed my sheep. Hosea loved and cared for an unfaithful wife because he discovered that like his wife, the nation of Israel had been unfaithful to God and knew the pain of a broken heart and he spoke from a broken heart. That's amazing stuff, isn't it? How many get the idea? All the suffering that's going on in these people's lives, God's using them in the midst of that situation. But let me move on to the second point, the cry of deliverance. Do you know it's not wrong to cry out in desolation? God, I feel like you've left me. I feel abandoned. It's okay to tell God how we feel. He knows how we feel. We can even tell God we're upset with him. Do you know Job never got in trouble for telling God he was mad at God? He never got in trouble for that. He got in trouble for some other things, but not for that. <clears throat> you know. And then I think it's okay to pray, God, deliver me from this trouble. I think we can pray that prayer. As a matter of fact, most of the people come forward for prayer. That's what they're praying. God, deliver me from my trouble. Amen? Yeah. I pray for that all the time. God, deliver me from my trouble. Paul prayed, God, deliver me from the thorn in the flesh. And I think it was okay to pray that prayer. But after the third time, God said, you know, Paul, I'm not going to answer that prayer. What are you going to do, Lord? I'm going to give you the grace. I'm going to give you grace so you can handle the thorn in the flesh. How many go, no, that's an answer to prayer. Hello? See, we want it our way. We want deliverance every single time, and we're upset if God doesn't deliver the way we want. And then God says, no, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you the strength to handle this. I'm going to give you understanding for this. I'm going to give you compassion through this. I'm going to use this thing in your life to help you to help other people. Wow, I don't want that, God. I want deliverance, right? Come on now, let's be honest. I'm just telling you what I want. That's not always what God wants, but that's what I want, God. You know, David asked that God would respond to his situation. He didn't give up. He persevered in prayer. David wanted God to look at his situation. He says in verse 3, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Man, can I just say to you and remind me, we have enemies, you know, as Christians, we just think, well, we have no enemies. Yeah, we do. Listen to the psalmist. He says, God prepares a table for me in the what? In the presence of my enemies. So when we walk around going, everybody likes me. I'm so good. Nobody hates me. I think we're not dealing with reality. Because if you're really a child of God and you're really doing something for God, people are going to not like you. There's going to be people rising against you, people speaking against you. Why? Because not everyone's sold out to God and the enemy works through people. You're going to be attacked. Some of you go, I don't want to, I don't want to create any sort of conflict. I'm a peace at all cost type of person. I hate conflict. I'll do everything to avoid it. Therefore, I won't do anything in the kingdom of God to stir up the enemy. No, because you're already defeated. Why would he mess with you? And by the way, if you're defeated, he's going to keep kicking on you whenever he wants to because you're enslaved. 
So I made a decision a long time ago. You might as well get up and fight back. Amen? And as a matter of fact, if you have the power of God inside of you, and you're believing God, you actually win a few bouts. Right? And other people are helped. So I say, go for it. So here's how David felt this battle raging against him. And by the way, this wasn't the only time he felt this way. Psalm 6, I'm worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. How many ever had a night where you're crying through the night? Well, David had that experience. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They feel because of all my foes. David knew conflict. Anybody doubt that? He had a lot of, you know, he was a leader. If you're a leader, you got enemies. Believe me. There's not everybody agrees with you. There's people upset with you. You know, the only time they speak well of you is when they bury you. When everybody speaks well of you. The greatest leader we ever had. Too bad we didn't appreciate him while he was here. Isn't that kind of the way people are, you know? Everybody's a hero after they're gone. So David, though he says, just towards the end of his life, this is his testimony. He goes, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all my troubles. So what is David saying to us? He's saying, look, you're going to have trouble, but don't sweat it. God will get you out of it. If he led you into it, he'll lead you out of it. Right? Hey, think about Daniel. He's minding his own business. He's a man of prayer. These guys are trying to scheme. How are we going to trap Daniel? Oh, I know. We'll make a law that nobody can pray to anybody but the king. Knowing that Daniel is a man of prayer. Prayer got him into trouble. He prayed himself right into the lion's den. But because he was a man of prayer, he prayed himself right out of the lion's den. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Keep praying. Psalm 37, 25, he says, I was once young, now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. God's going to be there. God will help you through your trouble. You know, think of what Paul writes to the book in Rome to the Romans. I love this chapter. Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And the answer is, nobody can. It is God who justifies. Who's going to come against God? You think Satan's going to win against God? No. You think any person's going to win against what God says? No, they're not. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? No, nobody can condemn because Christ died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hey, you know what? Other people may not be praying for you, but you can rest assured if you're a child of God, you have an intercessor in heaven every day praying for you at every moment. His name is King Jesus. He ever lives to intercede for us. That's a pretty good prayer warrior. I like that. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Well, we'll keep going. This is fun. <laughs> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? No one. These are rhetorical questions, and you get always get the right answer. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can any of these things separate us from God's love? Nope. It says, no, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. Hey, we're facing death. We're facing suffering. We are considered sheep for the slaughter. How many of you say, yeah, I see myself as a sheep ready to be slaughtered? Do you see yourself like that? No, we don't get that picture. We're only focusing on I'm a victorious Christian. You know, I never think of myself having to die for the kingdom. I'm just pointing out there's a balance to all this. You want to sing about the lion, you've got to sing about the lamb, Right? 
One's victorious, one's dying. You know, some people in the, in, in the early church were delivered and other people were killed. Have you read your Bible? I've read them. They both have faith. Not one's better than the other. They're just different. Let's go on here. No, and all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height, depth, nor anything else shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. We should have absolute confidence. We've got to settle something today. Does God love us? Oh, that's very unconvincing. We've got to try this one more time. Does God love us? Are you convinced God loves you? In spite of whatever happens to you? That's the right answer. Okay, you've got that settled. You've got to feel, file that in your head. God loves me no matter what. Yeah, but I just sinned the other day. God's bigger than your sin. God still loves you. Yeah. You know, I haven't got that book on his head yet. Yeah, I need to get that. The unfailing love of God. Do you know scholars cannot even describe the, God's love? Do you know that? There's no way to fully understand God's love. As a matter of fact, Paul says you need a revelation of it. In Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that we would understand, we would get a revelation of the love of God. We need to say today, God, give me that revelation you love me. Get that settled in my heart. Number, number two, God is good. He's not bad. He's good. He's only got good things in store for us, but not the way we think. Because sometimes he lets difficult things come into our life. We've got to settle this. Is God for us? Yes. Is God good? Yes. Does God allow difficult things to come in our life? Yes. Why? Because he wants us to become like him. Let me move on to the third point. I'm moving through the sermon, right? The cry of delight. Listen to this cry. Nothing changes inside of David. He's, 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 he's prayed this prayer, and then he says, but. Darren has a whole commentary on that last week. I'm not going there. But these conjunctions are powerful, right? Does everybody like conjunctions in the Bible? And, but, therefore. But I trust in your unfeeling love. See, David says, this is what's happening. I don't feel God. I feel like you're a trillion miles away. I feel like you lost my phone number. I'm wondering how long this is going to happen. But I'm trusting in your unfeeling love. And my heart rejoices in your salvation. I sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. I may not be feeling currently, but I know that that's my story with God. He's always been good to me. So David had settled in his mind that God was good. I think that's important. David's heart is transformed. In his dark night of the soul, he's moved from despair to hope. His heart is now filled with joy at the thought that God will sustain and provide what is needed in his life. He, this is how we handle the moment of testing in our life. It determines our future growth and our destiny. Ronald Rollheiser wrote, When Jesus walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked his disciples to watch. Remember that? What did those guys do? They slept. Now, he says something here very profound. They were meant to learn a lesson and to see something illustrated. Jesus didn't just tell them to pray, he said, watch. 
But as Luke tells us, they missed the lesson because they fell asleep on a sheer sorrow, were blinded by simple depression, were unable to precisely to stare humiliation in the eye. What do you mean by this? You know what they missed seeing in the garden? Was that they missed seeing Jesus struggle and eventually accept the innate link between the experience of humiliation and the resurrection of character. What did Jesus do? Father, if there's any other way to do this, right? Remember that? Take it. Take this away from me. But not my will, yours be done. Now Jesus wrestled to the point he's bleeding, agony, corpuscles in his, around his eyes, forehead, they're breaking, it's bleeding, drops of blood. I'm going to say it's pretty intense praying. Jesus really didn't want to go through with this. This is pretty intense. His humanity shrinking back, not just from the physical suffering, but ultimately I preached this a number of weeks ago from the emotional, the rejection of God, the shame and the humiliation. You know, pretty heavy stuff. What does he do, though? He gets to the third time, and he finally resigns himself to suffer. Remember that? Not my will. The third time, he finally just said, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to suffer now. I'm ready to do whatever it takes. The disciples were sleeping through that. They did not see Jesus process this great agony of the soul. This is real praying, folks. Just like... It says power and success. Failure and humiliation are also dangerous. Bullheiser points this out. Power can corrupt, but so can powerlessness. As a matter of fact, many of the acts of violence that issue forth when people feel powerless and humiliated. Isn't that true? Sometimes failure and frustration build character, but sometimes they build monsters and murderers. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Let me point it to you this way. How many have heard stories of people who got terminated they were shamed and humiliated at work and went out and got an AK-47 came back and started shooting people. Anybody see that? You know, think of this story. Many of you will know the story. Remember in 1963, I was actually alive then, some of you weren't, but 1963, John F. Kennedy, who was the president of the United States, was assassinated. I was a little boy. I remember this. That really rattled people. He was assassinated by a man by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, I'm going to move away from all you conspirators for a moment, okay? I'm going to give you my theory. There was no conspiracy. What happened was, when you do the psychological profile on Lee Harvey Oswell, he was everything, or he was everything John F. Kennedy wasn't. And John F. Kennedy was everything he wasn't. Kennedy was rich, famous, handsome, loved, highly respected. He had none of those things happening in his life. He was literally killing everything he longed for. It's kind of weird, isn't it? You see, when you're powerless and humiliated, you can actually become a murderer. That's what this guy's pointing out. I, I agree with him. Wilhelm goes on to say this. In Jesus' case, it pushed him into greatness. You know, to be humiliated is a very difficult thing. You know what? How many of them talk about when you've been shamed? This pushing him into greatness. How he handled his humiliation was perhaps his greatest gift to us and his deepest revelation of wisdom. By accepting humiliation and powerlessness without resentment, but as a gift that could be used to give something back to the community, he taught us one of the deep secrets inside the very DNA of love itself. 
crucify do real love, community, and character emerge? That's a very profound statement. What is he saying? He's saying when you and I, how many have ever made a mistake but you're not willing to admit it? Anybody have that problem? Some of you are going to have this experience. I hate to tell you. And you have to die to yourself. And when you do that, you will be resurrected. But it is very painful. It's a very painful journey. In David's case, he's pushed into greatness rather than to perversity. But I trust in your unfailing love. You know, David could have just retaliated, got sought revenge. A lot of people do that stuff. But I trust in your unfailing love. He turned to God. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Notice that David makes the choice to trust God's goodness and character rather than in the circumstances that he finds himself in. I mean, that's powerful. What he's basically doing is he's deciding to rejoice rather than complain about what's happening in his life. Is that amazing? See, nothing has changed. But he's making this decision based on who God is. You know, Israelites complaining in the wilderness, right? Yet God was with them every step of the way. God was providing. He never let them go without, yet we're complaining. I know we never do this, but I remember one time I was in Vancouver. We're on vacation. We're in Vancouver. I'm at, I'm at the beach, and I'm whining. You're going really faster? Yeah. To God, I'm complaining. You know, I'm so glad I'm a daily Bible reader, because what happens when you do this, God talks to you. I just happened to be reading that day a text that God pointed out to me that straightened me right out. I was reading Psalm 16. It says, I've given you this amazing inheritance. Your lot is secure. I've blessed you. I'm sitting there whining, and God's talking to me and telling me, you've got everything going for you. God goes, you're complaining and whining about nothing. You're looking at this all wrong. You know, there used to be an old hymn, and some of you will know it. It says, count your many blessings. Right? Name them one by one, count your many blessings and see what God has done. But what we tend to do is when we have a problem, we tend to focus on the problem and all the difficulties rather than focus on God. What was David focusing on? He was focusing on God's character. God is good. God is loving. Look how good God has been to me. He's, what is David doing? He's changing his attitude. Because you know, so often in life, we cannot change our circumstance. How many here in this room, you came here today, and you have a lot of negative circumstances happening in your life? Okay, lots of you. How many of you in this room can say, I'm powerless to do anything about those circumstances? Basically, I, I can't really change them. I want to. I want them to be different, but there's things that keep me from being able to change them. So what I'm going to say to you is, change your attitude. 
change. And when we change our attitude, life changes for us. We begin to see things totally differently. And instead of wallowing in despair and hopelessness, which is what David was, David now moves and begins to rejoice and sing praise to God. David changed. Not his circumstances, not his situation, but David changed. How many think that's powerful? You know, that's the, that's the secret of what we're all about here, folks. If you don't get it, that's what it's all about. Notice David didn't praise God because of the positive situation and circumstances he found himself in. Rather, he praised God for who he is and what he had already done in the past. And he was praising God for the relationship that he had with him. The fact that you and I have a relationship with God is an amazing thing. I don't think you and I really comprehend it. That God reveals himself to you and to me and to make us understand who he is so that we have a gift of faith living inside of us. Wow. The confidence which finally came is based primarily upon a change of attitude, not a change of physical well-being. According to Peter Craig's Old Testament scholar. You know, some parents pause out of certain jail ready to beat what they do. I tell God the tip and never preaching the gospel again. It was way too painful. You know, I'm cashing my chips in. Get somebody else to do this job. You can get crucified doing this stuff. That's not what I read. Acts chapter 16, they're in, they're in the jailhouse, and what are they doing? This is the first jailhouse brawl. They're singing praises to God. They have an earthquake. Twice the doors pop open, and the jailer now is freaking right out because he thinks they've escaped. He's about to commit suicide. And Paul shouts out to him, hey, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And the guy comes in with a torch, and he realizes, you know, they're all there. And he, he says, what do I do to be saved? Because, you know, these guys have been singing praises to God. How many know when you have that kind of an attitude in a terrible situation like they were in, it changes the people around you? You begin to change the people around you because of your right attitude. You know, John Maxwell defines hope. Hope is faith in the future and power for the present. I like that. You know, in all of our journeys as a believer, we'll have two categories of spiritual experiences. One is tender and delightful and loving, and the other can be quite obscure, dark, dry, and desolate. God gives us the first one to gain us. He gives us the second one to purify us. Let me close with a story. young woman married to a, a, a soldier during, you know, time during one of the wars. He had been shipped to train in the southern part of the United States, California, in the desert. And she, living up in the northeast part of the United States, wanted to be with her husband. That's a very you know, young guy who wants to be with her husband. So she moved. He told her, don't move down here. You're going to be really nothing here. I'm telling you, you don't want to be here. She decided, no problem, I want to be with you. So she moved. The living conditions were primitive as bad. He advised not to do it. The only housing they could find was a rundown shack in an Indian village. The heat in the shade was 115 degrees Fahrenheit. The wind blew constantly, spreading dust and sand all over everything. The days were long and boring. Her only neighbors were the natives around her who did not speak English. When her husband was ordered further into 